This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, I have two beloved guests. One has been on Dreamland more than once, Leslie Kane, and the other, Stuart Alexander, was on Dreamland on January the 20th of 2021, talking about his book, An Extraordinary Journey. Uh, now, why are they back now? Well, uh, Stuart is a physical medium. Leslie is, among many other things, one of the world's leading authorities on physical mediumship. She has been, yes, yes, Leslie, it's true. Uh, and she has been participating in Stuart's seance for years. But why now? Well, the reason is I went to Stuart's seance in Hull in Northern England three weeks ago now, I believe it is. I participated in the, in the seance. Leslie was there via Zoom on an iPad. And I had in that seance quite possibly one of the most, in fact, one of, it's not quite possibly, it is one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. And as you listeners know, viewers know, I've had a few of those in my life. Now, what exactly happened? Well, I'm going to start out by uh, telling you exactly what happened. And for that few minutes, I'm going to uh, be solo, I think. It'll just be me on the screen for the next few minutes. And I'm going to... Uh, talk a little bit about exactly what I experienced. The lighting is slightly different now because I'm recording this at a different time than I recorded the interview with Stuart and Leslie. Let me describe the in detail the experiences I had at Stuart's seance. And we're doing this in the beginning of the show rather than sort of teasing it toward the end, which would be the logical way to do it. Because many people find uh, uh, physical mediumship unconvincing, and there have been many frauds in the world. Now, I have experienced this personally with Stuart Alexander. I'm not saying that all physical mediums are reliable, but I am saying that I know that he is, and that what I am about to tell you, which is quite fantastic, really happened. And not only that, in this seance, it happens all the time. Well, what is physical mediumship? Physical mediumship involves, to put it very simply, the manipulation of physical objects and the appearance of physical effects in a seance. That is a physical, a physical mediumship. And that's what Stuart does. He is a physical medium. He causes manifestations. And you shall, you shall hear in a moment how extraordinary that actually is. Now, mediumship has a bad reputation, 
largely because there are so many people out there faking it. They can fake it so easily because it's done in total darkness. And for the most part, Stuart's actually unusual in that he, uh, uh, some of his seance is in a dim red light. So you actually can see a good bit of this with the naked eye, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, some other mediums do it this way, I'm sure too, but this is, I'm told, not the usual system. Much of the seance was in darkness though. Now, uh, Stuart doesn't charge for his home group, uh, and it's not public either. You, in other words, you can't just go to it. They only have room for one or two people in each home group seance. So, you know, it, it was a lucky thing that uh, I, I was invited and I went with a friend from Sussex who's also quite interested in this. Um, now, the, the, he has public seances, which he charges a modest sum of money for. And if you go on stewardalexandermedium.co.uk, you can find out about these. I think he has an email list and he'll send you an email telling you when and where, when one of these is taking place. Unlike many mediums, though, this is not a business for Stuart. Uh, what he charges is largely to defray his expenses for the public seances. Um, he's not in it for the money. That is very clear when you meet him. So there's that. Now, what actually happened? Well, we went up to Hull from London in a, on the train, and which he lives in Hull, and that's where the seances are, the private seances. And we met his group of people, his friends, who have been in the seance, many of them, for many, many, many years. It's been going on for 40 years. Uh, and we had dinner together. They're very pleasant, normal people. There was nothing unusual about any of them. You wouldn't have thought that you were getting ready to go to one of the most extraordinary experiences of your life with this group of people. Let me put it that way. They were just like you and me. Now, uh, when we first started, this let me set the scene. The seance room is pretty small, and so it was fairly crowded. Stuart was in a chair at one end of the room. This was an armchair with wooden arms and a padded seat and back. I examined this chair carefully. It was an ordinary chair. There were no switches, breakaways, anything at all in it. It was absolutely ordinary. There was a table in the middle of the room. On the table were two drumsticks and a bell and a couple of additional cable ties. Now, Stuart sat down in his chair and he was tied down with a pair of plastic cable ties of the kind that you see in the movies and sometimes on the news when the cops are leading someone who's been handcuffed with cable ties. And they're very strong and you can't release them except by cutting them. Very important part of the story. All right, so there was a person sitting, Stuart was at the head, there was a person sitting beside me, then I was sitting there, and my friend from Sussex was sitting on my right. And then the other members of the circle were arrayed around the circle. Stuart was strapped down in front 
And with the cable ties, I saw it done. It was totally normal. There's nothing unusual about it. He was then, um, there were, was glowing tape taped to his cuffs so that if he moved his legs, that could be seen. Also on the floor in front of him were two spirit trumpets, which will play an important role in this conversation in just a minute. <clears throat> These spirit trumpets are a traditional seance implement that in some say have a little nipple at one end and at the other, and then they open out in a conical form. And his are made of a lightweight metal. And around their bases, there was more glowing tape, so you could see them in the dark. Now, uh, in some seances, this has very rarely happened in Stuart's, but in some seances, a voice will whisper through the, the spirit trumpet. That is not what happens in, seance, in Stuart's seances for the most part. I'll tell you in a minute what happens in his seances with these things, because I witnessed this. All right. Uh, now, the first event that occurred was music is played. This is the same music that's been played to trigger Stuart's trances for a long, long time. And it immediately, at this point, as soon as he hears it, he goes into trance. And he went into trance and he made a, a gulping sound, which it was now oh, absolutely dark. Uh, he was strapped to the, to the chair. He, I could, interestingly enough, I could still see. I, I, I have pretty good night vision. I always have had. And even though it was completely dark, I, I could see uh, Stuart's outline. I could see the glow tape on the spirit trumpets and on his legs. And I could see the white of the ties on his arms quite clearly. So I could see some things. And first, a uh, uh, a spirit who then these spirits are all completely familiar to these people. They come to every seance that where they show up at all. These are the ones who show up. It's called White Feather, and you can find out more about uh, these spirits or about White Feather on Stewart's website on uh, StuartAlexanderMedium.co.uk, and. Also in his wonderful book, Extraordinary Journey, don't miss Extraordinary Journey, please. It's a great book, a wonderful introduction to mediumship and to the life of a very quietly but profoundly extraordinary man. Now, we are sitting here. White Feather comes and greets us. Then there's more gulping and another voice shows up. And these, these voices were not like normal channel voices. These were really different from each other and from Stuart's voice. I mean, very different. It was shocking, in fact, um, to me. This is Walter Stinson. Walter comes and uh, to most of them, they all come to most of them. And Walter Stinson proceeds to ask that my guest, my friend from Sussex, change places with the person immediately beside Stuart and put her hand on his wrist above the, the uh, cable tie, which she does. A moment later, I, I saw it. It looked to me, and now you understand, I could barely see this. 
I could tell that Stuart's hand had shot up in the air, and it looked to me as if her hand had stayed on the table. She perceived it differently. She perceived her hand go up with his and then end up on the table. I mean, on the chair arm, not the table, on the chair arm. And she could feel the cable tie still uncut beneath her hand around now just the chair arm and not Stuart's arm. This matter-through-matter matter experiment, as they call it, has happened in that seance many times. It has never been debunked. Then, and she says she's not sure quite how it happened, the cable tie was in her hand, still tied. It had gone off. Stuart's arm, wrist had gone, had gone through it. It had come off the arm of the chair. A chair arm, I knew this was part of the seance. I had examined this chair arm very carefully. It was not, there was no breakaway in it at all. It was ordinary. But now it was in her hand anyway. So she had it. She still does, in fact. It's a souvenir. Stuart put his arms back down on the table, and we soon heard a sound on the uh, uh, on the chair, and we soon heard a sound on the table. A little, I heard a little scraping sort of a sound. And it was, um, next thing I knew, I could once again just make out the cable tie tied around Stuart's arm, and I had heard it click. In other words, on its own, the cable tie had moved off the table and gone around his arm. Now, you're, I'm probably saying, like I said at the time, this must be some kind of a magic trick. But if it is, it has got to be the best single magic trick I've ever witnessed, except I was about to witness another one even more extraordinary. So now Stuart is uh, uh, back tied to the table, and I have also noticed something in the room that nobody else noticed, which was I could see these white shadows moving around. And uh, I don't know if it was my eyes or exactly what it was, but they're not part of the seance as far as I can tell. And I don't recall anyone else. Stuart doesn't recall anyone else seeing them, so I'm just going to mention their existence without uh, going into... Um, uh, any detail because I don't know what they were. Stuart, um, then it was still, it was Walter Stinson still talking through Stuart's voice, said to separate the two trumpets. And they separated the two spirit trumpets. A moment later, the one that's closest to me went up in the air. <laughs> And it didn't float or dangle. It shot up like, like a UFO. When you see a UFO, they're not, they're not flying. In other words, they just move like this. This thing did it that way. It just went up and stopped dead. Dead. Then it went around the room at eye level once or twice. And while that was happening, I was thinking to myself, this has got to be some kind of a trick. Even though 
I had examined all of this stuff. There were no wires. There was nothing on the spirit trumpet that had ever been attached to that nipple. I looked for that or inside it. None of that. And it can't be done with magnetic fields. Not what I was seeing. It's quite impossible. It is it would be uncontrollable. This kind of detailed control would not be possible. There were obviously no propellers or anything like that either. The next thing that happened was, as if responding to my skepticism, the spirit trumpet stopped in front of my face this far away. I mean, just right in front of my face. And not only that, it touched my nose and rubbed my nose, up, went up and down, rubbing my nose as if rubbing my nose in my own skepticism. It was completely incredible, deeply humorous, and wonderful. Because there's no way it could have been done by a magic trick. This was no trick. I then said to for the spirit trumpet to go to my friend. And it went across to her, went up and down in front of her face. Then it went up to the ceiling, which was at least a 10-foot ceiling and could be a 12, and shot around the room at ceiling level fast. And then it went, came down and went back where it had started. <laughs> I'm telling you, I saw this. I, li I literally witnessed this. And you could see it. It was very dark at this point, but you could see it because of the glow tape on it. You could see it clearly and hear it too. I mean, it was not silent. It was, I mean, it wasn't making a buzzing, but you could hear it when it touched walls and things. And, you know, you could definitely, it was there, definitely there. Uh, so, okay, so now we've had two... Uh, spirits talk. We've witnessed an impossible matter through matter thing. And this spirit trumpet has flown around the room and rubbed my nose in my own skepticism. Well, I was taken aback. The next thing that happened involved a very surprising business. Occasionally in the past, Stuart has had a situation where the face of a dead person will appear in front of his face. And now they turned on a, uh, a dim red light and asked my friend from Sussex to sit beside Stuart. They, he attempted to, or the spirits, I guess, attempted to form a face, but she did not see it. Then they asked me to sit there. And I'm wondering, what in the world can this be? I'm pretty taken aback at this point, I have to admit. And I don't know what to, in the world to expect. But I've been feeling Anne's presence the whole time. And th so I thought, I know there's something real going on here that's not supposed to be possible. So maybe part of that reality is I will see Anne again. And I, I was hoping that would happen and expecting it to, frankly. And then 
I leaned forward, and suddenly there was not Anne's face. It was my mother's face, with this look of strain on it. It was completely vivid. It was like a 3D image, like a person sitting there for us, maybe three seconds. And very strained. And I thought, oh, my God, it's my mama, and she's in some kind of trouble. It was absolutely terrifying. And then gone. And then the next thing I knew, to Stuart's left, well to his left, I could hear Anne's voice as clear as day making noises and attempting to to speak like that. And then it ended. Now, no one in that room could have known what my mother looked like when she was in her 30s. Or any time, if there are pictures of her on the internet, I can't find them. There, there might be if someone really, really digs, but I don't think so. So I was taken aback and also very disturbed. But then something happened. Uh, Walter said that Anne and my mother were together, and this was very important to me because they hadn't gotten along very well during either of their lifetimes. My mother didn't like the women that men that she loved also loved. She didn't like any of her brother's wives and she didn't like Anne. It was just my mother's nature. She, she was very, very much in love with all of the men in her life. And that included her brothers and, uh, and, and her sons. So, uh, Stuart thought afterwards that perhaps my mother was straining because it takes such concentration for them to do that. And Anne couldn't form words because she hadn't uh, uh, ever done that before. Interestingly enough, the one spirit that can speak outside of Stuart's mouth, in other words, not in his, and Anne's voice was not coming from Stuart at all is a spirit called Dr. Barrett, who we didn't see. And we'll talk about Dr. Barrett during the, uh, during the conversation with Leslie and Stuart. Now, this is all, uh, pretty much all that happened. So, it, it, there were a few other spirits that appeared of uh, one called Freda Johnson and a little child, but they, they, I don't recall that they did involved any kind of anything beyond speaking through Stuart. Not to say that wasn't important. It was, and it was very remarkable. But to me, the cable ties and the spirit trumpet were just amazing. And what happened with my mother was deeply surprising and shocking and in the end quite wonderful because I also got to hear Annie again. And it was so distinctive. It was just as her voice sounded so long ago, it seems now. It's hard to believe the many years that have passed. In any case, I just want to repeat now, Stuart's book is Extraordinary Journey. 
You can get it through our website or on Amazon or wherever you shop for books. All right. Now you're back. My friends who have really surprised the dickens out of me. Um, um, and so I'm going to ask them more about this. First, Stuart, if you could briefly introduce yourself and if, folks if you're a subscriber and you would like to listen to Stuart's backstory as it will were the story of his uh life and how he became a medium please do so on the uh, uh extraordinary journey uh podcast of January the 8th of 2021 but if you're not a subscriber I would like to Stuart to just tell us very briefly uh, how long have you been doing your seance? Well, the actual seances, <clears throat> as such, we formed our present circle, uh, I think it was about 42 years ago. 43 uh, years. Yeah, 42, 43 years, something like that. And <clears throat> we have sat weekly for 42 years until COVID came along and then obviously three years ago we had to stop sitting because of covid and naturally we've all missed it terribly not only you know uh, the group of people that together week after week after week you know we're almost like family not only that but also the spiritual team we miss them tremendously as you can imagine, because they are very, very much a part of our lives. Uh, and so when finally we were able to start again to sit together, which is now uh, several months ago, it was just such a joy to be together, you know, as a circle and also to reconnect with our spiritual team. Well, so I that, can... that... Sorry? I can imagine. I... Um after all of those years uh, of suddenly having to stop would have been very hard now leslie when did your your association with stuart begin because we haven't ever talked you and i have talked about other things on this show but not about stuart yeah i mean i think it was 2014 that i so it was when i was working on my book surviving death that i discovered an earlier version of Stuart's memoir, it's since been revised, Extraordinary Journey. And I just was so impressed by that book and so moved by it for so many reasons, which I, I won't go into now, but I, I, I managed to get in touch with Stuart. And after that, um, I think it was the spring of maybe 2015, I went over and went to a, a weekend event that Stuart, these annual events, the biannual events that Stuart used to hold they're kind of like retreats where people gather together and there's talks and sittings and things. I went to that and then I went back to the home and sat with the home circle twice in that week. And like you, Whitley, it was completely life changing for me. I mean, incredibly so. And there were more phenomena that occurred than you actually witnessed because they hadn't had this long break of two years. So there were there were a lot of things that occurred in those two sittings. Right. And I, um, I want to talk about some of those phenomena that you've seen because they're brain bending. I mean, you know, from my perspective now, I know this is real. I have been I've been there and done that. And I I, 
I know a fair amount about magic. I have to tell you, I've been involved in, I've, I've had friends who were actual stage magicians. And this was not stage magic. It was absolutely was not. Now, Stuart, apropos of that, I want one of the things that if I read the comments on the last show we did, uh, that comes up is the, the question of why does it have to be so dark? One, one person even says, well, the spirits wouldn't need it to be dark. It's obviously to fake it. So why does it need to be dark? Well, can I say, first of all, quickly, that it never ceases to surprise me that skeptics and critics are so knowledgeable, you know, that they can, you know, point a finger at the fact it occurs in darkness. There is a very good reason why it occurs in darkness, a very good reason. And obviously, you know, I'm the very first to, uh, to agree that a fraudulent medium, I mean, it's heaven sent, isn't it, to be able to work within the dark. They can get all up to all types of things in the dark. And that uh, has been done very often. Uh, it has indeed. It has indeed. So I'm the very first to agree that, yes, fraudulent mediumship, you know, uh, it's wonderful that, you know, darkness is essential because that allows them to be able to act fraudulently. But the reason why it is conducted in the dark at the seances is because in order for the spirit world to manifest in a physical manner, they need to withdraw from the medium, from the nose, from the mouth, from the solar plexus, etc. This living energy, which is often referred to as ectoplasm. Now, I believe that everyone everyone all living creatures have within them this substance ectoplasm but a physical medium just happens to have an abundance of it that can be utilized can be withdrawn by the spirit world and can be used in order to create physical manifestations now when it leaves the medium when it's withdrawn from the medium this is what i understand quickly as it leaves the medium it's almost smoke-like in appearance you know, but very quickly that can be changed to something very substantial, very substantial. And it is the ectoplasm that is used in order to manipulate uh, matter, physical matter, in order to uh, move the trumpets around the room, in order to materialize themselves, the spirit people materializing themselves. I'm sure will tell us about this. Um, all kinds of physical manifestations rest and depend upon this living energy ectoplasm. And what we do know is that the introduction of any form of light without permission of the spirit workers can create um, great problems for the medium. It can be very, very dangerous for the health and the welfare of the medium. And in fact, it's on record that various physical mediums in the past where lights have been introduced have suffered the consequences to their health you know uh, one medium in particular <clears throat> um, died sometime after light was introduced within her seance room another medium who had worked for oh, 50 years was one of the most wonderful physical mediums in history somebody shone light within the seance room 
and he paid the ultimate price and he was never able to work again in as a physical medium you know oh my and god it was, yes it was terrible terrible so it's always a big concern for any genuine physical medium that somebody may come along and start you know with the intention of shining lights etc in order to as they think to expose the medium in fraud you're right um leslie uh, I would like to talk to you a little bit about ectoplasm. I know you've made quite an extensive study of it. Uh, what is it? It's been, it's, ectoplasm has been gathered and analyzed, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I haven't made that much of a study, but uh, I have read that when they, so first of all, ectoplasm is basically an energy. So if you try to put it in a container, there's not going to be anything there by the time you put the lights on. But they have, they have been, as I understand it, Stuart, and Stuart is an expert on physical mediumship, by the way. He's not just a physical medium. He's a scholar of physical mediumship, more than I am. But let me just say that, and if, do you hear a loud noise in the background? I hope not. There's, a, there's workers outside my place that are making a lot of noise. It's faint. It I don't think it'll bother us. So go ahead. Okay. So when there have been situations where they have tried to put ectoplasm in a container, when they take it into the lab, what they've found is the, the epithelia, the skin uh, cells of the medium himself or herself, because it's exuded from the human body. So all that's gonna remain are the cells of the body from which it came. The energy that it is, is gonna evaporate. It's not like you can put energy in a bottle and then take it to a lab. So, but it does show us that indeed it's something that comes out of the body of the medium. So it's, it's, it's not exactly, you can study it more through photography, through observing it. There's lots of photographs that have been taken of it in, in the days gone by. Every situation is different. Some mediums are safe with photographs, some aren't. You know, every situation is so unique. So the other thing I just wanna make about the point of darkness though, is that whenever the spirit team with Stuart can introduce light they do whenever it's safe for for stewart and the spirit team are in charge of calling whether that safety of, of determining the safety stewart is basically putting his life in their hands and for some experiments it is okay to put some light on and they do and one of them was one of the ones you witnessed whitley when there was some light on stewart's face another one is the experiment where where walter materializes his hand in ectoplasm which has been observed by many people, including myself, yeah, many we're times. To, we're going to experiment. Talk. Yeah, we'll talk about it. I just wanted to mention we're that there's. We're going to talk about it, but you've you've yeah. gotten to a point where I wasn't sure I wanted to go, but I am going to go to go here. <laughs> I'm going to tell about what happened when the light was turned on. It's a dim light, and I was asked to sit close to Stuart. Um, I, I was asked to sit close to him and I believe my friend from Sussex had, had done it a moment before and didn't see anything, but the, there was, and I'm going to ask you in a moment about how this is, Stuart, uh, there was a, going to be an attempt to materialize the face of someone who I knew from the other side. And of course I thought, oh, Anne, how fascinating. 
and I leaned forward and to my great shock I'm still just talking about it it comes back immediately I saw not Anne but my mother with her face sort of crunched up like this clear as day for a couple of seconds and uh I'm telling you, I was shocked to my core and for two reasons. One is I didn't expect it. And two is that there are no pictures of my mother. There may be, you can, if you really dig into the internet, you probably can find one. But it was mother as she looked when I was a boy. And it was a extremely moving as I say, the shock just went down to my core. And it wasn't your face at all, Stuart, not at all. And um, th then the next thing I knew, I could hear clearly to your left, Anne's voice, Anne's voice going, <laughs> trying to form words. And then it ended. It ended. And I was told that they were together. It was very important to me to hear that because they were not together during this life. Mother detested the wives and lovers of all men that she loved. She detested both of her brother's wives and she detested Anne. And she detested my the girlfriends I'd had before that, too. And that was just mother's nature. So the idea that they were together, and especially Anne, such an orphan in this world, she really had me and, and our family. That was Anne's family. She didn't have a family of her own. And it was such a joy to hear that they were together because, you know, Anne has somebody on the other side, too, now. So this is all incredibly moving to me and Stuart will you tell me you don't perceive anything you don't have any memory of any of this even do you or do you no absolutely no memory whatsoever because I'm always in a, a deep state of what's referred to as trance uh, <clears throat> what I can say to you uh, Wickley is that in seeing your mother what actually happens is that the ectoplasm is withdrawn and then uh, it's referred to as transfiguration where a spirit person is able to show their face which would have been in front of my own it was you in see? front of your face it wasn't it wasn't superimposed on it it was in front of it about it looked up about this far away yes yes but you know the thing that occurs to me as you're talking about that weekly is the fact that no matter how you try, how we all try, who have had experiences within the seance room, such as what you've described, you know, you can tell other people about it, but unless they've actually been there and experienced it themselves, then they can't really fully know what it's like, can they? You know, they can find it interesting, but the skeptics will say, well, you, you saw what you wanted to see. That's what they will say, you know? You know, well, I didn't think I was going to see my mother at all. I, it didn't even right. occur to me. 
It wasn't. Yeah, she was not in my mind. I was expecting to see Anne. Yes, absolutely. This is what I'm saying, you know. So, to me, you know, but you see all of these manifestations, physical manifestations within the seance. Yes, they are important. I do believe that 100%. But evidence of survival, communicated evidence is so vitally important. And if we can take the evidential communications and place them together with the physical manifestations well that presents a very very strong argument in favor of survival and communication that's always been my belief evidence is so important you know but i'm so pleased Whitley, that you had that experience and, and was able to see your mother i mean transfiguration is something that has not really been a, a part or a regular part of my mediumship for years I think it's only ever happened on perhaps three or four or five occasions. That's all. So there was nobody more surprised than me when after the seance she was able to tell me yes. that your mother would transfigure that. Wonderful. And you told me after the seance too that I was very disturbed by her expression because she was struggling. And I thought, oh God, is she in trouble? And... Um, oh. Because, you know, we had a hard, we had a very wonderful, but very complex relationship, and it wasn't perfect. I mean, it's a human relationship. If it was perfect, it wouldn't have been one, right? So, uh, but tell me what you told me then. Tell us what you told me then about why she had that expression on her face. Well, I would imagine, and of course, this is just supposition, really, on my part, but I would imagine that for a spiritual person or a, a person from the next world to show themselves in that manner we can only assume that it cannot be easy for them to yes. do that you know and i imagine that she put so much effort into showing herself and that, that would describe, explain why you know <laughs> she she looked as she did and that was that that was ex the second you said that i realized that that was what mother looked like when she was doing you know, something really hard, uh, yes. you know, she had that, that, that was the expression of strain, you know, where she was lifting something or something like that. And then yeah. Anne's voice never formed words. And you, you, you explained, explain why she couldn't quite form words, but it was so clearly her voice. And anyone who listens to these shows and who you go to uh, the Mysterious Powers episodes that are still on the site, if you're a subscriber, you can hear Anne's voice, and that's exactly the voice I heard. It was a very distinctive voice. And Anne and is your wife, isn't she? My wife, yeah. yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's right. Yes, yeah. Well, again, I imagine that for a spiritual person, a visitor from the next world, to actually speak, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that may be. One of our regular communicators for many years now, Frida Johnson, now, Frida, when she first began to manifest and speak, she had terrible problems and it took a long, long time, practice, 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 before eventually, you know, she was able to speak as she speaks today. So it's not easy. That's what we take as being the reality. It is not easy for them. So I think the fact she was able to speak at all to you 
what does that say? It says that there must be tremendous effort on their part to, to get through to you. Yeah. And that's wonderful, wonderful. She's she's very good at, at doing this. She's the only person I know of who created an avatar for herself in this world before she died. It's a white moth. And folks will be talking in the next week or so to someone who's had extensive experiences with her husband and with me uh, yeah. that are involved with Anne and the white moth. Now, Leslie, can you tell us a little bit about, you, you said something fascinating to me after the seance about the need to, to form a, a voice box, a vocal, vocal cords using ectoplasm. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, what, what that means for the for them to talk not using Stuart's vocal cords, but in in another way? And does that happen? Have you heard it? Yeah, there is one uh, spirit person named Dr. Barnett who only communicates that way. He never speaks through Stuart's vocal cords like Walter and Christopher and Frida do. But he will form a, a take the ectoplasm and form a, a voice box off to Stuart's side somewhere and speak through that. And you, when you hear the voice, it has a very different quality because it's basically speaking in a different location from Stuart. It tends to be quieter than the ones that speak through him, but very distinctly Dr. Barnett. He and his voice is extremely recognizable. But the interesting thing is, is that's the only way he ever communicates. Um, and there are times when I've been in seances where actually Stuart has woken up during the moments where Dr. Barnett is speaking, and they will speak right one after the other, or even at the same time. So you can clearly hear that Stuart's voice is separate in a separate location from Dr. Barnett's voice. You know, that's fascinating because it occurs to me, you say Dr. Barnett, was he a medical doctor? Yes. He actually does a lot of healing in Stuart's seance room. That's that's what he, he comes into. And of course, a as a medical doctor, he would understand anatomy. Therefore, it makes sense that he's the one who can become most physical and can make a thing like a voice box out of ectoplasm. <laughs> <laughs> he's also the one who materializes in the room. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that. I, I, I would love to see that someday. And uh, of course, anyone would. Uh, Stuart, tell me, and then I'm going to ask Leslie for her face-to-face -face experiences with Dr. Barnett. So prepare to just take your socks off now. They're going to drop off later. All right. Now, before we go on, I have to remember to do a break. And so uh, I'm going to do a break right now, folks, for the Free Dreamlanders and do get Stuart's book, An Extraordinary Journey. I think you can get it through the website. And if not, go on Amazon or wherever you buy books and get it and read it because this is a real thing. This isn't, this is something that we have, we've gone blind to what we really are. And people like Stuart and Leslie and Stuart's book and Leslie's book help us. And my book too, I actually, Anne and I wrote a book, Afterlife Revolution as well. They help us break through 
that blindness and begin to really see the world as it is in all of its wonder, its excellence, and its potential. We'll be right back. We're back with Stuart Alexander and Leslie Kane. Uh, an extraordinary journey, and we're certainly on one today. Uh, now, we were beginning to talk about Dr. Barrett, who manifests physically in the seance room. Do you, and Leslie mentioned uh, that you sometimes wake up, Stuart, during his manifestations. Can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Barrett and your relationship with him? Well, Dr. Barnett has... Um, Barnett, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. Uh, it's probably now been a part of what we refer to as the spiritual team for maybe 25 years, I would think. You know, at least 25 years. For me, for me personally, one of the most wonderful things in regard to Dr. Barnett is the fact that from time to time he does perform healing. Uh, and we've had some absolutely extraordinary results. Well, Dr. Barnett has had some extraordinary results. Interestingly, uh, there are occasions when he cannot help people with health conditions. Now, don't ask me why, because I have no more idea than what anyone else would have. But sometimes uh, it's, it's extraordinary, you know, the healings that he does perform. Um, but, you know, I've never personally uh, sort of witnessed Dr. Barnett materialising. I have sometimes felt his hands on my head, and that's happened. Uh, and, and very often, I think Leslie will know this better than I do, actually. Very often when Dr. Barnett materialises and walks out into the seance room, he usually has uh, someone working with him, a sp another spirit person. And people at different parts of the circle will feel hands on their head, big hands, small hands, you know, which is quite extraordinary. So let the skeptics explain that. So, you know, a hand touched my head. I just, you just reminded me that of that while the trumpet, just after the trumpet had gone around the room, a hand went like that. Wow. I, yeah. I, so, yeah. Now, Leslie, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences with the good doctor? Yeah, I mean, as so he does speak in independent voice a lot, but we're talking now about materializations which don't happen that often, but when they do, it's beyond spectacular. And that's I what I want to hear about. Yeah, the last time it happened with me there, it was I think pretty close to when we, you know, a couple of years ago before COVID. Um, and what happens is uh, Stuart has something called a cabinet in his seance room, which is just basically a curtain that can be closed around, can be enclosed around his chair, which normally is just opened. But when there's going to be materialization, the curtain gets closed because the energy needs to build up inside the cabinet for the for Dr. Barnett to get the energy he needs to come out. So the first thing that happens is the curtain is closed. And there are there are ta um, luminous, luminous yeah on the on the curtain. So you're sitting there, and suddenly you you see the curtain open by itself, basically, 
uh, with because you see the luminous tabs on the edge move open, and then yeah, uh, the last Stuart is tied down. He, oh, he's in his chair inside the cabinet, completely tied and movable, and you can see the illuminated tabs on Stuart's knees. So Stuart, you can see clearly see that he's sitting there in the cabinet while all this is happening. Um, and there's just a small group of people who have been with him forever. I mean, the, the idea of anything trickery, any trickery is just beyond my, is just beyond ridiculous at this point, because I've sat with him for so long. Um, but anyway, you, you'll hear the footsteps. I think he, he makes a point of creating the sound of footsteps when he walks out so people can tell where he is in the room. And as Stuart said, there are sometimes these helpers and they're, they're usually children that come out even before him. There was one time where there were like three or four of them that came out and people would say, I feel a child's hands on me. And they would be around the room kind of before Dr. Barnett would come out and they're always really small. But then he comes out and he walked around the circle. And in this occasion, he hears footsteps. He came around to where I was sitting and stopped right in front of me and put his, he has very large hands by contrast to his helpers. He put them both on top of my head like this. And then he was going, he was like bang, he was like patting my head like this upside down with his two big hands, like really, really this sort of very strange kind of patting motion like this. And I could hear him talking right in front of me and the voice was totally the same voice that I knew from the times he had spoken in independent voice, but it was certainly Dr. Barnett, he was totally recognizable, but I could feel those hands on my, on my head. And um, he, said, he said, I just wanted to show you that I'm a solid human being. Um, which was just, it, it's like you're in this state of transformed disbelief, belief. It's, I, it's very hard. It's indescribable what it feels I, like. I know to the have state. This. I've been in it too. You do, but you know how hard it is to describe also. Yeah. To have yeah. this, you walk out of the room who wasn't there, who didn't exist in physical form a few minutes earlier. And he's physical and right in front of me, feeling his hands, hearing now, his voice. Could you see his whole body? No, this is in the dark. Oh. This is because ectoplasm is what he uses to materialize. It has to be in the dark. It's very, very important that that would be one of the more riskier things to put light on would be a full body materialization because of the energy required and the amount of ectoplasm required to form his body. Right. So it's absolutely in the dark. So you can't and you can't reach out your hands and touch him either. You sit there and he touches you. Because there's a danger if you were to mess with the ectoplasm. You just don't do that. But what, what you can hear happen, us. Stuart, let me ask you this. Do you know what would happen if somebody did fool with the ectoplasm? Yes, I think um, from, I ought to say, Whitley, that, you know, I've not just worked as a medium for all of these years, but I've also... For over half a century, I've studied in depth physical mediumship, the history of spiritualism, the history of psychical research, etc. etc. Yes. And what I do know, and I know this from history, from what I've learned, that if uh, somebody, you see, if the spirit world gives permission for light to be introduced, that's fine. You know, we always take our lead from the spirit world. Whatever the spirit world asks us to do, we do. Now, if somebody was to foolishly switch on a light or anything like that, 
whilst the materialized form, whilst any physical manifestation is occurring, then instantly the ectoplasm would return to me very, very quickly, and that would co cause irreparable damage to my health, you know? And as I said earlier on, there have been cases in the past where mediums have paid the ultimate price because that is precisely right. what happened, you know? Have the spirits ever given permission for there to be light in your room? You're oh, they do, from, uh, yeah, they do from time to time. I, I'm correct, Leslie, in saying that. Have you yeah, ever... yeah, I said earlier, Whitley, they do for certain things, like they do put low light on sometimes. Yeah, well, they did when I was there, is what I was saying, because it was they, yeah. they turned on a red light, and it was low, but it was very easy to see everything when yes. that light was on. And yeah. that's yeah, so, why I could see my mother's face. Right. Yeah. So for the hand material, so this is, we're talking about a whole person materializing when Dr. Barnett does this, but something that happens a lot is the materialization of just a hand. And that is in the light in Stuart's seance room. Yeah. You can actually see it as well as touch it. Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment, folks. Uh, free Dreamlanders enjoy these commercials. We're talking to Leslie Kane and Stuart Alexander. Stuart's book, An Extraordinary Journey, uh, The Life of a Physical Medium. Uh, it, my relationship with Stuart and Leslie also, who brought me into this relationship in the first place, has changed my life because I have personally witnessed this i've seen it i've seen the miracle that unfolds in that seance room and i've had experiences there that i'll never forget as long as i live and the way we're beginning to understand the world i probably won't have forgotten them even after i'm dead so uh let's now um, we've been talking about Dr. Barnett and his materializations. And I, I, also there's a matter of a hand that hasn't been explained very clearly. That's incredibly extraordinary. And there's a lot of physical evidence. I don't, I think we should begin with you, Leslie, in, in talking about this, the hand and how this all works. Okay. So what happen. happened? Many times, and I've touched that hand many times. I can't even count how many, and I've watched other people experience it as well. Okay, well, tell, many, tell us a little bit. Let's go back a step. The hand, how does it come into the room? What happens exactly? Well, I'll explain that. There's a, a table that's in front of Stuart's chair. And I remember, Whitley, you saw the table that oh, has sure. the Oh, sure. I the saw hand. everything on the table. and oh, yeah. So that table is cleared off. And there's a red light underneath that table. It has a red cloth over it. So this light is put on underneath the table that shines up through the table so that the table's illuminated. And what happens is ectoplasm is, is I assume it's coming from Stuart's abdomen. But what you see when you're looking at the table is the edge that's facing Stuart. You're on the, and so the sitter is on the opposite side of the table from Stuart. So the table's in between the two, let's say in between me and Stuart. And I will see this cloud of ectoplasm 
come over the edge of the table that's close to Stuart, and it just gradually comes closer and closer to me. It almost looks like water. It's just this moving substance that you see silhouetted against the, the light of the table. And out of that silhouetted moving substance, you'll s gradually will see that the formation of, of what look like fingers. It just sort of gradually, you see these digits kind of form from there. And then there's a moment where the hand, where you see this thing lift up out of the, um, lift up from that substance. I'm trying to get myself on the camera, my hand on the camera. But it lifts up and it's it's three-dimensional, it's physical. It just, this moment, we're right out of the ectoplasm, it'll lift up and then it bangs on the table. And the reason it does that is you can hear it and you know that this is a physical hand. You've watched it emerge out of this substance. Then, and it's Walter Stinson who's doing this and he talks you through it. He then retracts the hand and comes back and you see the whole thing again. This cloud comes over the side of the table. It's moving around. You see this hand gradually form out of it. You see it lift up and become physical. And at that time, he then tells me that I can put my hand on the other side of the table and that I can touch his hand. And so I do that and I hold his hand like this and I, I'm like feeling it and you know for a minute or so and i can describe what that feels like but just to finish what happens um and then he, re he retracts his hand and it kind of goes off the edge of the table you don't see it disappear but you see it slide off the edge of the table towards Stuart's body now the whole time this is happening Stuart's just to remind people his his wrists are restrained by these cable ties on the thinnest part of his wrist, there's no way he can slide out of them. They also go through a loop underneath the chair, which really locks them in place. And nobody can slide them out. So Stuart's locked yeah, in I've and he's got his... I've examined that, folks, with my own eyes and, and, and I've yeah. felt it myself. And I've seen the bizarre thing that happens when he does get released from the cable ties and heard and then seen the process of him being retied by impossible means. I've seen all of this. So yeah, let's go ahead. Yeah, so just to tell you what that hand feels like and then we can, we can ask yeah, any questions. That you, yeah, it felt, it, and it always pretty much, and sometimes the hand, one time it had a sleeve on it, by the way, and I, there's other times where there's been a child's hands materialized, but it's usually Walter. So what it felt like to me was extremely soft skin, like a baby skin, which I thought later that really makes sense to me because this is brand new skin. This is like being materialized in that moment. And it was as soft as it could possibly be, yet it was a large male hand and it had all the features of a regular hand, the knuckles, everything was completely normally human, but it was extremely soft and it was extremely warm to my touch. That was the only way that it sort of distinguished itself and very large, much bigger than my hand, much bigger and thicker than Stuart's hand too. Stuart has kind of a thinner, thin hand. This was a very stocky hand. Let's see your you hand, know? Stuart. <laughs> hold up your hand. Yeah. No, no, don't move. Just hold it, hold it up like this so we can see it. Yeah. Yeah. See that? It's a thing. That's if you, yeah, if you hold it close to the camera, it kind of looks gigantic like this, but his hand is more like this. So. Move it closer to your face, Stuart. Okay. And it's hard to position it, but the point is this was a stocky, kind of stubby. It had kind of thick, stubby fingers, you know. Right. Very warm and very soft. A man's yeah. hand, in other words. 
Yeah, well, it was we're, large. We're going to we're going to talk about what it feels like to hold a hand like that in just a moment. But free Dreamlanders, I love you, and I want you to subscribe so badly. And it's time to say goodbye. And subscribers will keep right on keeping on. So continuing on, subscribers. Uh, Leslie, can you tell us a little bit more about the hand and and what it feels like? And yeah, what, and just yeah. To, go ahead. Yeah, just so it's clear that people understand that Walter Stinson, Stewart's one of Stewart's spirit team, who's the who's the one who's responsible for the physical manifestations. He's speaking through Stuart throughout this experiment, and it's his hand that is being manifested, just so people, so he's telling you when you can touch him, and and he's asking you as the sitter to describe what you're seeing, but the, the, amazing, the funny thing is, I just want to share, is almost every time before he does this experiment, especially if there's a visitor in the room who hasn't been there before, Walter will say to them, would you like to hold the hand of a man who has been dead to your world for 100 years? That's his line. I, I'm sure you're aware of that story. He says like, he loves that line, and it like he asked that to some visitor. Imagine if he had said that to you, Whitley. Well, he probably will next time you come. Yeah. But that's what he says, and you know, of course, you're going to be overjoyed, and that's where the whole experiment starts. Um, and what it feels like, I mean, you're just transported. It's 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 so physically solidly real, and yet you saw it form out of nothing. You saw it before your own eyes form out of nothing. And yet it's a solid, alive, responsive, physical hand with skin and bones and knuckles and everything. And then it disappears. And it's it's another one of these things that just transports you. It's, it's like the meeting, uh, I don't know, the meeting of two worlds. It's like the physical impossibility that's able to occur because these beings from this other plane of existence are able to work with the ectoplasm to make this happen. And you're just transported by it. It's hard to describe, but it's, it's yeah, absolutely it, fantastic. It, it, it's hard to describe, and it would have been impossible to describe to me until I had experience with this. I haven't had that experience. Is there any, any evidence ever left of the hand? One time it wrote something, remember? I don't know, remember, Stuart, it's in Katie's book. It wrote a note to Katie Hallowell, who wrote this book about her experiences sitting with Stuart. Um, Do you recall then, Stuart, maybe, what it wrote? No. I think it said, hi, Katie, Walter, or something like uh, that. Uh, Walter, hi, Katie, your friend Walter. Um, um, and then, if, you know, I, I don't know, I can't think of other things, but there may be other things where it's left something behind or done something. There are other occasions, not with Stuart, where hands have been uh, materialized and wax molds have been able to be made of them. But since that's not part of Stuart's uh, uh, seance, we can perhaps talk about it with Leslie, who knows about it at another time. Uh, Stuart, I would like to get in now into the personalities that are coming in because, you know, there are all kinds of implications. Like people ask, well, do they reincarnate? Uh, people ask, uh, why these particular spirits? Who are they? So can you begin maybe by telling us a little bit about what you know about Walter Stinson? Yeah, could I say first of all, uh, Whitley, that when my mediumship first began to develop 
which were going back now for uh, well over 40 years white feather was the very first spirit person to work through me and it was some years before eventually the little boy known as christopher began to work through me now what i'm saying is that these various personalities all have individual responsibilities white feather always opens the seances christopher then uh, is very mischievous and you know if you can imagine people coming along for the first time who have never sat with me before never experienced physical mediumship they may understandably be very nervous and it's christopher's responsibility to lighten the atmosphere to take away the nerves and i think leslie will back me up when i say he does a very very good job of that he does he does and uh, you know instead of the seance room being very tense and nervous within minutes of christopher arriving then none of that exists and everybody is just enjoying the moment so that was his responsibility then frida johnson came along and it's her responsibility to uh, pass on evidential communications which is very very important as far as i'm concerned yes. and then walter stinson came along and he very quickly we 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 learned that he was solely responsible no doubt there's a team of workers behind him but he is responsible for the physical manifestations now i have to say that when i was told that walter stinson had arrived and given his name i was well i didn't know what to think the reason i'm saying that is because for many many years i had studied physical mediumship from the past and one of those mediums that really stood out for me was the medium that was known back in the 1920s and 30s as marjorie the medium she was also known as the eighth wonder of the world extraordinary medium now when she lost her brother walter due to a, a train accident uh, very quickly he began to work through her now the fact is that ever since she passed into the spirit world you know skeptics have come along and today she's referred to as the greatest psychic fraud in history and i think it's such a miscarriage of justice it's horrendous you know and all the skeptics concentrate on certain aspects of her mediumship none of them none of them ever mention manifestations that cannot possibly be explained away cannot be explained away they are totally ignored so when i found out that somebody who was saying he was walter stinson you know had arrived and wanted to work with the team i didn't know what to think but then later thinking about it i thought well that really doesn't surprise me because you know i've learned so much about his sister's mediumship about him personally and i thought this is wonderful that he had determined that he would return to complete the task that he commenced all those years ago through his sister's mediumship and he'd heard about my you know my, my interest in his sister's mediumship and because of that gradually he was drawn towards my mediumship 
And so for all the skeptics and all the cynics that constantly berate Marjorie the medium and Cola, the greatest psychic fraud in history, well, I'm sorry, but that is absolutely nonsense. It's a miscarriage of justice. And I so, feel so privileged to have Walter working through my mediumship as part of our spiritual team. It's wonderful. You know, the fact that mankind has been walled up in the trap of the physical is a miscarriage of justice too. A great miscarriage of justice because it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be necessary for us to struggle and to have to have these careful experiments. We should be uh, much more fully and comfortably connected with those on the other side. and. Uh, I feel that very strongly about my wife and now so also my mother. And I'm thinking that, what are they like? What is their world like? And, it, you know, we have these ideas that there's a between the lives. And in fact, the m people who came to my cabin in the 90s came so noisily and obviously, and one of whom manifested physically at one point said that's where they were from between lives so what if anything have they ever said to you about where they are from and what their own destinies may be well i think i've tried to cover that to a certain extent within my book uh life is continuous our earthly life is only the beginning of a, a wonderful journey you know and beyond death the world that awaits us is impossible for them to describe. And as I say in my book, you know, they've said to me that it's like trying to explain to a man, a person blind since birth, what color is like, or explaining to someone deaf since birth, what the sound of rain is like. It's impossible to do that. All we know with certainty is that the next world is a world of infinite love. We know that peace and infinite love you know Whitley and I often think to myself if only mankind on this side of life finally accepted the reality that life is eternal what a different world we would be living in today what a different world we would be living in you know and I often think that often think that so you know we do know that when we pass from this life into the next life we we enter into a world the likes of which we cannot possibly begin to even imagine in this world. But we know that awaiting us are our loved ones who have preceded us there. So we will all be greeted by them. A world of infinite love. Wonderful. Well, my wife said um, of us right after she parted, it looks like you're all intentionally ignoring us, which... I have a feeling that this wall around us is built by us and uh, maybe to an extent uh, by the people who are who are so ferociously denying the existence of things like this and I you know I have to tell you that when I when Leslie first brought up physical mediumship to me I thought oh dear and <laughs> she's but, lost it huh <laughs> and then but she's uh, Leslie's a sharp lady and a good reporter, and so I listened, and I'm glad I did. Um, another thing Anne said that I think is reflected in almost everything that happens in the seances is uh, 
The human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. And the, the, the whole experience of the seance leaves us with another higher level of question. It's no longer a question of, are they there or not? The question is, what is our relationship with them? And what could it be? And Leslie, you've thought a lot about this, uh, about our relationship with them and what our world could be if we were more open to them. So can you talk a little bit to that and referring, of course, to your own book? Yeah, I mean, when you say them, I guess I'm not completely it's sure. It's a pre pretty broad them. I was hoping you wouldn't ask. I mean them. I mean, I mean this, the disembodied, the, the disembodied part of the human species, the part of yeah, the human I species mean, that isn't in the physical world, and maybe the aliens too. For goodness knows, they could be. They could perhaps be in a situation where there is no veil for them between the living and the dead. They they might have an entirely different world. In their world, something like a seance might just be ordinary life. But go ahead. So, yeah, so your question was, what is what does that mean to me, right? Or something. Yeah. Like, what does the what does the like. the existence of this other world, in your knowledge, your now certainty about it, mean to you as a person? Um. Well, it just means a connection to another level of reality. I mean, I can't imagine now my life without it, really. Um, you just, I just perceive life and the world to be so much more than I used to. And there's also the mystery of it. But it's interesting what you said about we only, about the questions, you know, we, we can't have too many beliefs, but there's questions. It's like, when I first started, with, started sitting with Stuart, and Stuart might even remember this, I just, you can imagine the way my mind works, right? I'm, I had so many questions. Um, and I just wanted to ask Walter questions, and I wanted to ask Stuart questions, and, you know, I'm this reporter. I just had to understand everything. And over time, I've, and I wrote about this a little bit in the epilogue, my epilogue to Stuart's book, which he invited me to write. Um, over time, I just the questions just kind of drop away, and it's more about just living in that reality now. It's living in the experience of it, um, and that there will always be an unanswered element and always be a mystery to the whole thing. And I've kind of given up on a lot of, of trying to peg a lot of it into answers. So um, that's been an interesting evolution for me, that process. And now I just want to experience it and see what. Walter's gonna, he does experiments that are different every week. And and so, yeah, it's just for me, it's just living in a much greater perception of what the world is all about. Um, and not just not just feeling that, the, that it's all physical, that reality is all physical. It's far from that. Um, yeah, but you know, it's a pretty specific answer, but I don't really know how I can describe isn't, it. Isn't there, a, let me ask you this, Stuart, now that you, know this world, this level of reality exists. How has it changed the way you live? Well, I would say it's a very difficult question to answer is that with me because I'm still the same person as I was 50 years ago. 
um, the, the only difference is that now, and, and for many years now, I've accepted and I've known that there is survival beyond death. But, but I have to say, having said that, I have to say as well that even in spite of my knowledge, and I would, you know, could be speaking for anyone who believes in survival, definitely believes in survival, when we lose someone close to us, a loved one, it matters nothing what our belief system is. We will grieve. We will grieve. There's no escaping grief. But then eventually, because of our knowledge, then obviously that helps tremendously. But initially, no, you know, we will grieve because obvi for obvious reasons we will grieve. Um, and, and that was the case with me when I lost my sister you know, always very much a part of our home circle, you know. Uh, but, yeah, so I don't think it's really altered me as a person that much. Um, you know, I'm still who I am. Well, <laughs> it, 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 it set me on a path to, of self-examination, personally. I, I became very aware of my, of my soul and its condition, and it, it eventually led me to the writing of a book called Jesus a New Vision, which is an attempt to see past the Christian ideas to Jesus as, as, a, as a teacher as he was during his lifetime. So I wanted to do that because I think that it, it's important to journey as best we can toward the good. Now, Leslie, uh, in surviving death, I am trying to recall if you talk at all about how this awareness of the reality of this other level changed your life and changed the way you think about the world i think you can't really add much to what i already said except it radically changes it for sure because yeah. this is you experience it like you said whitley this is real when you have the experience you discover that that it's real that there really is this other reality and to get to live in it like as many times as i've experienced it and then to get to sit weekly through this um connecting through the computer i mean it it it, it becomes reality for you it becomes the world you live in that's the difference i think yeah. um and and it's through direct experience that you know that what about heaven um, and hell? And either one of you can answer that. Or, those those ideas, those old ideas that there's a heaven and a hell, and you know what we do on this earth is uh, depends where we go depends on what we do on this earth and all of that. What kind of meaning does that have to you now, Stuart? You know, it's something that I've never really given much thought to, to be quite honest. And I have to tell you that I. I you know, and this, if you'd have asked me this 50 years ago, I would have said exactly the same thing as I'm about to say to you now. And that is, I do not have a religious bone in my body. And I don't. I never have had. Seriously, I never have had. You know, so I don't know. You ask about heaven and hell and all the rest of it. No, I don't know. You know, I can't really answer the question. Sorry. No, no, that's that's probably one of the reasons that you can do this is that you you're not looking at it through a screen of of expectations and beliefs. You just see what's there. 
Yeah. Uh, because you, you see, don't have those expectations and those beliefs. You see, um, I believe I believe that the movement of spiritualism uh, to a large extent this past 30, 40, 50 years has become more or less a religion. And I don't see it as that at all. Survival is a fact of life, demonstrable fact of life. And so I don't understand why people want to try and make it into religion because it isn't as far as I'm concerned. Now, Leslie and I have a friend called Combe Kelleher who just published an article about uh, what I would describe as a paranormal infection that was not only a paranormal infection, but one that could be communicated from person to person, where negative entities seem to be involved. Have you ever had any uh, experience in the seance or in your life with what I would describe or you would describe as negative entities? Not at all. Never, ever, ever have we had that. And I think the reason for that is because like attracts like and that's the old saying but i firmly believe like attracts like and we have such a wonderful spiritual team from the world of eternity and and we put ourselves in their hands every single time we sit i've no concern whatsoever that a mischievous entity spirit may you know come amongst us none whatsoever because we trust 100% our spiritual team. You know, like attracts like. So if you sit in the correct way, you know, with, with love, with patience, in total harmony, sitting together with the same expectations, with the same hope and desires, with patience, then there's nothing to fear whatsoever. You know, nothing. Because you will, will only attract, you know, from the other side of life, souls who are in tune with you i think that's absolutely critical and it certainly fits my own personal experience that this other level will will reflect who you are very much and you know a man like you is a living an honest life and basically a businessman and uh uh who's done this sincerely and with great effort for so long uh you know you haven't been anything you haven't done anything that would attract negative entities i don't think uh, leslie uh, tell us about tell us your res response to this i don't think you have a, a really strong belief system religious belief system either I, 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 no no yeah i mean i think i think the difference is with the, the what you're talking about it has to do with the location in which these energies exist independently of the humans that come there. They're kind of poltergeistian, you know? Yeah. And it's not like, you know, so if somebody goes to this location that, that Colin was writing about and they're, they're impacted by these energies that are already there or that come there. But it's not what with Stuart, you know, we're, we're in a designated space together for a specific purpose. And we're working with this regular spirit team every week, the same ones. It's a very different kind of situation. And so that's, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't think the people that go to Skinwalker Ranch, can, we can say, well, they're somehow attracting negative energies. I just think it's the energies are already there. And they kind right. of glom on people that go there. And my reaction to that is don't, I don't ever want to go to that location. 
Well, I would, like to, I would like to go to it, to, of course, because that's I'm I'm fatally curious. And, and I don't the word to, in this case might literally be fatally. No, I don't intend to go there either. You already have enough entities. Uh, I don't think you want any more yeah. following you home from there. No, That's I have wonderful do. entities in my life now. I mean, I'm incredibly yeah. grateful for my life experience, including the hard parts of it, because it was always a learning experience from the beginning. So, Stuart... Right. Where now? Whither are the, the seance? I, I, now that let's hope that COVID finally is behind us in the next few months and, and you're meeting regularly again. Uh, what do you have hopes or do you just not think in those terms? You simply go and do it. Don't think in those terms, Whitley. We leave everything in the hands of the spirit team everything in the hands of the spirit team as far as i'm concerned and this is the principle the only reason that i do what i do is because i know just what comfort it can bring to people who come along to sit with the circle who perhaps are grieving because they've lost a loved one and i know you know it's just it's just such a joy you know it, it's not yeah. always so we can get people come along who desperately want to connect with a loved one and it doesn't happen but we don't know the reason why but you know very often it does happen and that's oh i can't even begin to tell you how wonderful that is for me personally you yeah, know yeah i didn't expect it i wasn't thinking about it at all when i went to the sounds all the way up i you know in fact in the weeks before it never crossed my mind I didn't even know you did that until I was actually in the room and and, and it started to be explained that it was going to happen. It, I, you, know, you know, I read your book, but I didn't, I didn't register that part. Well, do you know, Whitley, one of the things that I think I've come to learn over the years that I've been working as a medium is that when we get people come along to sit with us, who desperately, desperately want to make contacts with a loved one that they've lost, it very rarely happens. Yet, when people come along with no expectations and just sit, it can happen. I, I yeah. don't know the reason for it, but, it, but it, that's the reality. That is a reality, you know? Um, yeah, it is. That's the reality. I don't know. And <laughs> you remember with me, or what I said to you before you came on many occasions, you know, I said what concerned me was the fact that the circle really had not really sat for almost three years and we'd only just started sitting. And uppermost in my mind was that I didn't want you to come along and perhaps experience a blank sitting and go away, you know, feeling disappointed. But as it was, the spirit team as they generally do, managed to, uh, you know, to create what they created. And that was wonderful. Well, that was, they certainly did put on a good show. That's for sure. I, you know, <laughs> I got those emails from you and you were worried. And I thought they were so sweet. And, you know, they, they, they came out of your, 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 your own deep nature, wanting to have, give something and, and being afraid you wouldn't be able to give it. I didn't worry about it for a minute because I had no expectations one way or the other about what would happen. I wasn't hoping for anything or against anything. Uh, I was just going to be there because Le Leslie had said 
it was such a wonderful experience and I wanted to have it. And I was with somebody who's particularly open to these things. And I, I thought she would enjoy it too. And it turned out to be just the experience of a lifetime for both of us. So I want to thank you for it. And Leslie, always thank you for, for introducing me to Stuart and, uh, uh, both of you for your wonderful books for, uh, Leslie's book, uh, uh, Surviving Death, and for your book as well, Stuart, and I'm fighting desperately here, my senior moment, an uh, extraordinary journey. <laughs> um, you know, you reach a certain point in your life, uh, as I have, and you've done so many interviews, as soon as you are called upon to say a name, something deep or, or, or remember something like that in the, on the fly something deep within you kind of stiffens up i'm waiting for the day when someone says to me and you are and i say i am hold on <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. you're both laughing because you're both afraid of the same thing <laughs> quickly i do experience the same thing <laughs> <laughs> of course you do, and so do you, Leslie Ahmed. You, you absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's been yeah. an absolutely speaking of absolutes. It's been an absolute joy to be together, and I would like to also thank the Spirit Team for their willingness to bring this extraordinary experience into the life of Whitley Strieber and those whom he loves. Uh, it was, and all of my fans too. Now, I also, of course, love. It's been a joy. Uh, so, thank you for being with us. Thank you both for being with us on Dreamland. Thank you, Whitley. Thank you, Whitley. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>